Welcome to the Limitless Grit Podcast, where we have conversations with social entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and ordinary people who are achieving extraordinary results. And now, here is your host, Shristi Gajarel. Hey, what's up, everyone, and welcome to the fourth episode of the Limitless Grit Podcast. I am so, so excited about this one because it is with one of my personal heroes, Ken Banks. So just to give you a little background, Ken is recipient of multiple awards, including National Geographic Explorer Awards, Pop Culture Award. He's also nominated for Ted Prize Award. He was member of the UK Prime Minister's delegation to Africa and has been on panel with Nobel Prize winner Desmond Tutu. Ken is also known as the pioneer of social entrepreneurship and is writer to one of my favorite books, The Rise of a Reluctant Innovator. So without further ado, everyone, Ken Banks. Welcome to this podcast, Ken. Super excited to have you. But for people who don't know who you are or who are not familiar with your work, just give us a little background. So uh, I guess it kind of goes back to my childhood in a sense where my my mother was very encouraging of us to to take an interest in the world and to explore and to be inquisitive and to ask questions and to never take no for an answer and just to really be very very kind of open to learning and i think maybe i'm just lucky but uh, at this stage in my career i still feel as i'm learning all the time i've, I've certainly not stagnated every day I learned something new and I'm, I'm very, very grateful to be able to do that. So I think that's sort of a, a trait I've carried forward throughout my career. I've never really settled for anything. I've always tried to push myself a little bit further. Uh, whenever I've done something that's worked, I've always felt I could probably do a little bit better or do a little bit more. I'm certainly never, never satisfied. So that, that was sort of my childhood in a sense. And as I was growing up, I, I accidentally discovered at a local club that I was very good on the computers. I, I taught myself to program, mm -hmm. uh, code them and to change lines of code around to make them do different things. So very early on, there was a the beginnings of a, a technical thread to a lot of the work I was to do later in my life. A bit after that, I continued with my interest in the natural world. My mother encouraged us to you know, be very interested in birds and wildlife. And I kind of got very interested in Jersey Zoo, which is a world famous zoo um, on the island in Jersey where I was brought up. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I got interested in sort of international development a little bit. Live Aid in 1985, which was the global rock concert that Bob Geldof organized around the Ethiopian famine, got me very interested in international development and how the world could be so imbalanced. Wow. And you know, Jersey's a beautiful place. And I felt very lucky that I lived in a very beautiful place without any of the problems that I was beginning to see um, happening around the world. And at that point, I was you know, working in merchant banking, uh, in finance. Mm -hmm. I had a good job. Um, life was relatively comfortable. But I always felt very uneasy in the back of my mind that there were people out there who were having a much tougher time than me. And the only reason they were having a much tougher time was because they were born somewhere different. Mm -hmm. That was really all it was. So uh, that was really kind of the beginnings, I suppose. Oh, wow. So um, I've like listened to your TED Talks and I've read your book and you said your life changed in 1993 when you took a trip to Zambia. What made you take that trip to Zambia? I think it was um, curiosity. Uh, again, going back to what my mother had taught me to, to always be curious and to want to explore. I'd, I'd kind of got interested in, in Africa and development and some of the 
the problems of the world. And uh, I just randomly heard one day uh, when I was waiting for my girlfriend at the time for lunch um, about a trip to Zambia, which the states of Jersey government had organized. It was a five week trip. It wasn't very long. Mm -hmm. But I thought it was a chance to actually get out and see what I was seeing on TV and reading about at first hand. And so I just uh, I just applied and I was very lucky to get get accepted. Yeah. Were you the only one who um, went to that trip or were there more people um, in that trip as well? There's about 15 of us, I think, in total. We went to, to help build a school, uh, accommodation for a school in uh, in northern Zambia. And, you know, I, I, I almost thought I wasn't going to come back. Um, you know, I had no, no idea what to expect wow. uh, when I when I got to got there. And there were certainly, you know, some risks involved in going. But that, I think, made it all the more worthwhile. But there were there were 15 of us. It was a five week trip. And I, I, I learned a, a huge amount. It was it was certainly enough to want to drive me to, to learn more. Wow. So did everyone from your trip went back to Africa? Uh, no one else seemed to really be too affected by it. Um, I've sort of written about this a little bit that I, I was quite disappointed that out of everybody that, that went there on that trip, everyone else seemed to just go back to their daily jobs and their daily lives. And nobody seemed to be affected in any way by the poverty they saw, by the suffering, by the hardship. I, I couldn't let go. Um, I'm, I'm very I'm very sensitive in a way. I'm probably over oversensitive and it, it does give me problems in life because I do get upset very easily by things. And that's what drives me in a way. It's it's mm-hmm. it's a feeling of guilt and and just being very sensitive to, to other people and their feelings. And I, uh, I went back to, to Africa two years later. I went to Uganda in 1995 as oh, yeah continuing part of my my quest to learn you know at this stage in my in my life I wasn't really looking to fix anything I was just trying to learn I was reading as much as I could I was meeting as many people who worked in these areas as I could I was getting out into the into the field as much as I could Mm -hmm. and that was all I could really do at that point I think uh, one of your interviews you said that you were scared of people who try to make a difference in this world and you know, you said that it's really important to understand a country before you go there and help them. Would you mind explaining a little bit more of that? Yeah, I think there's, um, you know, it's a, it's a fine line in a way. Uh, you know, if you have people who want to try to help make the world a better place and make people's lives better, you don't want to discourage them from doing that. You know, there's enough problems in the world for us to need as many people as possible mm-hmm. trying to help um, find solutions. But if you don't understand, really understand the problem, and if you don't really understand the people that are facing that problem, you know, it could be thousands of miles away mm-hmm. on another continent, you can actually end up causing causing harm. Um, and, and, you know, maybe it worse for yourself, you may end up just building something or designing a solution, which just has no effect at all on the problem, because you haven't really spent the time to to, to really explore it. So, um, you know, one thing I always encourage people to do is is to to get out into the world. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want to try to help people, go and live with them, go and spend time with them. And yes, they might be two or three thousand dollars away in, in flights and and other other travel costs, or you know, it may take you a few months. It may even take you a few years. But it makes such a huge difference if you understand the the context, the language, the geography, the culture, gender issues, mm-hmm. geographic issues all those things it it makes a difference and also i think it gives you credibility 
among the people that you're looking to help that you've actually spent the time trying to learn about them in their lives. Mm -hmm. Um, And you um, mentor entrepreneurs, especially social entrepreneurs. What do you think is the biggest mistake most entrepreneurs make when they start and start a organization? I, I think probably one of the main ones is that, you know, people tend to pick a problem that they find perhaps the most interesting to mm-hmm. solve. So certainly in academia, you know, I, I meet lots of people who are starting projects, starting social enterprises. And the only reason they're working on a particular problem is either because they were told or mm-hmm. because they had done some research and you know the problem was big enough to be worth solving. And it, it's very mechanical. It feels very cold. And it's very, very different to solving a problem that you've you know, you're walking down the street one night in, mm-hmm. in Congo somewhere and you meet a woman with a child and they're in, you know, in, a, in a really bad way because of something and you learn about it, you know, through through emotion. Mm-hmm. I think needs, you know, there needs to be more emotion and more passion in this. And certainly the books that I've, I've done so far, particularly The Rise of the Reluctant mm-hmm. Innovator, the keys is that almost everybody in that book was hit right in the heart with the problem they saw because they actually saw the problem and the people in the eye. Mm-hmm. It wasn't from a distance. It wasn't picked as part of a course. So I think that's the biggest problem I see is people don't pick a problem that really, really hurts them and makes almost makes them cry. That's what you need, I think, to really, really be driven enough to care enough to build something that might last. Can someone build something just for the sake of building and solving a problem, even if they're not really passionate about it? I mean, in, in my experience, you you really have to be very passionate about what you're doing mm-hmm. and it, it needs to really matter to you that you solve it. And, you know, maybe a, a great example of that from from one of the books, Laura Statchel, who mm-hmm. designed solar lighting solutions for maternity wards in uh, what started off in West Africa, but it's gone global. You know, she saw women and babies dying in front of her yeah. and she she was so driven and shocked uh by what she saw that she went home and she started working straight away on trying to find a solution mm-hmm. it mattered to her that she found that solution because she couldn't shake those images from her head of having seen people dying in the dark unnecessarily and so i think if if you're hooked in that way if it's emotionally uh, attached to you if you if you're vested in that way then you just don't give up Whereas if it's something you haven't seen, you know, if it's on TV or you haven't had that emotional connection, it's very easy to quit one problem and then just decide to go and try and solve another. And so I think passion is absolutely key. And for people out there who are really into entrepreneurship and social entrepreneurship, you should definitely check his book out, um, The Rise of the Reluctant Innovator. It's an amazing book on 10 individuals who are truly making a difference in this world. And more than a story of victory, it's a story of their journey. So, Ken, you did an amazing job on that book. Um, Thank you. How long did it take you to write this book and how did you find these individuals? Uh, so it was kind of funny, really. I um I ended up traveling with the UK Prime Minister around Africa about four or five years ago, wow. and I met the editor of Wired magazine in the UK, and um, we got on quite well, and we chatted, and he invited me to write a six hundred word article for the magazine, which is very small, but Wired is a is a big magazine, so mm-hmm. I was hugely excited to be invited, and he said I had to think of something that people would talk about down the pub, 
And so that kind of limited my options in a way, because a lot of international development is quite, quite dry and boring. And it's not the kind of thing you would talk about mm-hmm. down the pub. But I, I wrote something about reluctant innovation. I, I had kind of noticed this theme in, in people's work that I'd met across and over the years that they had almost kind of dedicated their lives to fixing something, not necessarily because they'd planned to, mm-hmm. but because they'd seen something which upset them so much that they ended up just quitting everything and just really going for it uh, and finding a solution. So I featured two people in that very short article, but I realized as I did that, that there were lots more out there. Uh, so I just, um, I crowdfunded that first book and the first one failed by a long way. I think I was asking for too much money. I didn't do a very good job of promoting it. It, it succeeded the second time. And during that process, I just used my network. So I, I know probably personally about seven or eight of the 10 mm-hmm. innovators. So I wasn't missing that many. But there was a common theme with all the stories that these people had not gone out looking for something. They were quite happy with their lives. They didn't want their lives to be complicated by becoming social entrepreneurs. Social entrepreneurship is not easy. Uh, few people I know volunteer to do it. it it's, there are far easier things you can do with your life. Absolutely. All of your stories were incredible. And I loved the one where a lawyer is going through so much personally yet she is still fighting with pharmaceuticals companies so they wouldn't raise money for HIV medicine or uh, cancer medicine in third world countries. Yeah, you know, she had friends that, um, you know, she lost friends along the way. And, and her, I mean, her chapter, yeah, Pretty's chapter is, is particularly personal. And that's what I liked about about the stories I managed to get for the book. My editing was very light. I wanted them to to tell their own stories. And I wanted for their own voices to come through it was funny i was looking at a goodreads um review of the book only last week in fact Mm -hmm. i said it was it was hard to read because there was no consistency in the writing and i thought absolutely you've you've knocked it on the head there is no consistency (laughs) in the writing because it's 10 different people and if it was consistent writing then it would i would have done too much of a job in kind of silencing that genuine voice and i I think pretty and and all the other authors of those chapters Mm -hmm. did a job of speaking from the heart they they do they do speak like 10 very different stories by by 10 very different people absolutely what i loved about this book was it was their story from their perspective and they were so raw and open about their struggles and how they overcame their struggles so that i found very very powerful absolutely and you know i didn't think there were enough books like that because you know, one of the things I find, and you know, certainly speaking to you now, when people people ask me about my work, and I meet other people who are doing certain things, I'm, of course, I'm interested in their solution, what kind of social enterprise they created, and why they chose that that route, and how their their tool works, if it's a piece of technology, how it works, and mm-hmm. who's using it in what ways. I love all that, but one thing I really love the most about social entrepreneurs and social innovators and people who care about the world is like, what's their story? Mm-hmm. Why? Why are they doing what they're doing? What drives them? Is it is it religion? Is it a quest for fame? Is it, you know, is it because they just see things that really upset them? Mm-hmm. And I think that's why the book so much is, is so much focused on that. It's like, who are the people behind these innovations? Because we almost hero worship sometimes. We have the Muhammad Yunuses and the, you know, these kind of big social entrepreneurship is. But um, sometimes you just don't know enough about them as people. Like, what were you like as a child? You know, what did you do when you were young? Um, those kinds of things. I'm always very inquisitive about that sort of stuff about people. And also tell us a little bit about how the experience was, you know, being member of the UK Prime Minister's delegation to Africa. How was that experience like? 
I mean, it was a bit of a, a, a strange one, to be honest with you. Um, I, I was I was quite surprised to be to be invited. You know, it was a it was a business delegation, so it was full of business people who'd be signing, you know, very very big deals. And the idea was to showcase how how UK organisations and people were impacting the continent. And I, I think they felt that among the business people, they wanted somebody who was doing something a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my work was was taking off and uh, many African countries have used the platform that I built. And I think they just wanted to show a, a different side to that. But, you know, it was a chartered plane. It was full of reporters. Um, I managed to watch the government working uh, very, very close up. And they actually worked incredibly hard. They they did not sleep. Um, it was it was pretty tough for them. Um, and uh, so I kind of met some interesting people along that along that way too and of course the book then came from that trip mm-hmm. but I, I never expected you know when I when I went to number 10 Downing Street for a meeting about that trip I, I was sort of pinching myself the whole time <laughs> thinking you know how on earth has somebody from a fairly you know nondescript housing estate in Jersey uh, who kind of struggled most of their lives how did they end up in in number 10 Downing Street and and going to Africa with the prime minister I mean I still today it feels like another person but I mean, you you have to give yourself credit for building something that's helping twenty to thirty million people every single year, and that's incredible. Yeah, well, it never, you know, I never set out for that really. I, I wouldn't say I necessarily got lucky, but you know, when I when I did start to, you know, really finally after a very very long period of time, start to see something that I could do mm-hmm. to help. Because, you know, my, my learning spell took me from 1993 to 2003. I spent 10 years learning and exploring before I came up with any solution to anything. Uh, whereas, you know, going back to one of your earlier questions about some of the big mistakes that people make, I think sometimes they're, they're in a hurry to build something. They're in a hurry to find a solution and then sometimes end up building something that doesn't really work. It took me, took me 10 years and it was by accident that I really came up with the idea for that, that messaging platform. Wow. But yes, I mean, it is a it is a, a strange feeling to have managed to succeed in an area where a lot of people struggle to succeed. But and I, I kind of got lucky as well, although I did work work quite hard for quite a long time. Wow. So what was the accident and how did you come about building Frontline SMS? And for our listeners who don't know what Frontline SMS is, if you can give us a little background on it. So, um, so Frontline SMS is a in its original form when I built it was an offline text messaging platform. So it allowed you to do lots mass two way text messaging from anywhere where there was a mobile phone signal. You didn't need the internet. You didn't need high, high cost equipment. You could use simple laptops and simple phones. And the idea was to allow grassroots nonprofits in developing countries to reach out to farmers or healthcare workers or conservationists or human rights activists, mm-hmm. um, whoever it might be by blasting them text messages and then getting replies and then being able to do things with those replies could be monitoring elections or or whatever. Mm -hmm. And the thing was at the time there was nothing around that allowed, you know, very, very poorly equipped, um, financially poor grassroots organizations to make use of all these phones that were appearing around them. And that I saw as my opportunity because I had a strong technology background and I Mm -hmm. spent, at the point of actually writing Frontline SMS in 2005, that was 12 years into my journey that I eventually built built that. So, wow. I mean, the story, I guess, behind getting to that point was, you know, those 12 years, I, I learned a huge amount. I spent lots of time in, in many African countries. I, I lived in Nigeria for a year. I'd done my two 
Jersey overseas aid trips, the Zambia trip and the Uganda trip. I'd been to Zimbabwe, mm-hmm. been to South Africa and Mozambique. I mean, I'd been to Uganda more times than I can remember. And so I, I, I had a lot of experience of what life was like for grassroots nonprofits who were struggling to to survive, struggling to help their communities, struggling to help their neighbors. And that was central really to to frontline SMS working because when I built it, I knew exactly who my customer was. I'd mm-hmm. spent 12 years learning about my customer. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why, why it works. But, you know, funnily enough, the story of getting to that point in, in 2002, I was, I was living in Nigeria running a primate sanctuary. So I was helping capture, um, orphan primates who have been, um, used as, you know, caught as pets. There's a lot of bushmeat hunting going on. Uh, and so I was in this kind of year spell of learning about conservation in, in West Africa. And I broke my leg oh, wow. on a motorbike, which was a very bad thing to do uh, in Nigeria. In oh, wow. In Nigeria, yeah. It was midnight. Um, midnight after going out for a while with some of the stuff from the, the sanctuary. And the bike hit a car and I ended up over the oh. handle. I was in the middle of the road and I, I broke my leg in two places. And it was pretty, pretty horrible. Oh, but. I got flown home and I was at home in 2003 when uh, some friends from Jersey Zoo who I'd worked with a few years previously had been given some money from Vodafone to explore the potential of mobile phones Uh in development work. And they said, look, we need somebody who understands technology and development and conservation. And you're the only person we know (laughs) who understands all those things. Do you want a job? But if I'd broken my leg, I would not have been in Jersey at that point offered that work and then of course frontline sms wouldn't have happened and everything else wouldn't have happened so i literally had a career break you know my leg was broken and that was the turning point in my life so maybe the lesson there for people and certainly for myself is that sometimes you need to go as low as you can possibly get before things really start to take off was it the lowest you've ever gotten in your career i think so yeah i mean when i got back from um from Nigeria I'd lost a couple of stone I was I was thin I was I had um I had malaria at the time and my broken leg oh my uh, I had nowhere to live I had no money I had no job I mean I, I really had no idea you know I was 30 35 or whatever you know I should, should have probably been settled down and married with kids and a mortgage and a, a nice car and all those things that most of my friends had and you know there was nothing nothing was going for me uh, and I had no idea what I was going to do next. That was the scariest thing. Although at that particular point in time, I really had nothing going for me. I, I couldn't see what the next step was. And when this mobile phone opportunity came up, which really for me touched on all the things I was passionate about, it was there was this new technology which had the potential to do amazing things for people. It was it was useful in places that I spent a lot of time learning and exploring. It had meaning. It had a social meaning. I knew if it if this technology could be used properly in a, an appropriate way, it had the potential to save people's lives and make people's lives better. Mm-hmm. It ticked so many boxes, but but it was just pure luck that I was there for that opportunity. But it was certainly the lowest point um, of my career by a long way. So you had no money, no job, no home, and you know you were in one of the darkest places in your lives and you could have easily gone to London and worked in finance or worked in technology why didn't you go back and what kept you going forward with this project even if there was no foreseeable future with it yeah I mean I could it was a great question I I could have gone back I suppose but I, I felt that my life was on a certain trajectory and I had spent so much time investing 
know myself in trying to understand what life was like for the people I was I was concerned about and had had compassion for and you know after 10 years I didn't want to really throw all that away and go back and I, I guess I could have gone back for a couple of years and then got some money mm-hmm. um, but it you know funnily enough it, it maybe sounds like a strange thing to say but funnily enough it never really occurred to me to go back mm-hmm. I almost felt at that point that you know I needed to have some kind of some kind of spiritual fulfillment there needed to be some something that had meaning for me and every finance job that I had and although I enjoyed the technology work most of my technology work was helping make other people rich and I I just didn't want to do that anymore um so if I hadn't have got the mobile work I I really have no idea where I would have gone from there Um, I I hate to think where I might have ended up wow I mean how how do you make sense in such an uncertain situation um I I I don't know I mean I'm (laughs) I'm quite I'm quite stubborn uh, and, and quite driven, and as I mentioned earlier, I'm I'm I wouldn't say daring, but um, I'm quite adventurous, and I I have this sort of belief, and I've always had this belief that things will work out. It was the same at school when I I failed most of my exams at school, and I kind of didn't go to university until I was 30. So I was a very, very late kind of bloomer in terms of academic achievement. Mm-hmm. But I always felt that it was going to turn out okay. I just had this feeling that if I just kept going, it would be okay, and I just trusted that. And you know, I could easily could easily have gone the other way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm, I'm I'm very grateful that it did turn around. But it was just a gut a gut instinct, and I, I do feel, in a sense, spiritually driven in some way. I I, I never quite know how to describe it uh, and describe what I do and why I do it, but. I did feel that something was just telling me I just needed to p- to persevere. And of course, then when you succeed, it means a lot more mm-hmm. because you look back and you can think, wow, there were so many points where I could have given up and quit, but I didn't. So um, do you think people should listen to their inner voice and intuition more often when they're making these huge decisions in their lives? I think so, yeah. Um, I, I think we're at a time now in the in the world where, you know, careers, jobs for life, uh, no longer exist i think that the, the more the, the more you can do in the more number the greater number of places i think enriches your life um opportunities to travel opportunities to use the internet and technology to learn about the world more to meet people from different cultures and different places i think people now should um perhaps more than ever just kind of go with what they feel is right mm-hmm. because they won't miss that career train when i left banking in the 80s mm-hmm. to this you know banking was booming in those days and I, I remember being told look if you leave now you could leave at the best possible time to be here and you might not be able to get back but I didn't really care care so much about that um I, I do think a lot of people that I meet who succeed are very spiritually driven and they're very very kind of confident and have faith in whatever they're doing is going to work out and certainly when you look at the stories in the rise of the reluctant innovator almost every one of those innovators had very similar points to me where nothing seemed to be working nobody was listening to them nobody seemed to care mm-hmm. people just didn't get it the money wasn't available and they could have all of them could have given up mm-hmm. all 10 of them could have given up at, at multiple times and they and they didn't so yeah, I mean, I think that for me is the is the, the the biggest piece of advice I could probably give to people is to just follow your dreams. You only have one shot. You don't get a second chance. I I mean, that just gave me chills. Like, I agree with you 100%. And I'm 23-year-old, and most of my friends in their 20s are, they know they're in wrong jobs, right? They know they're what they're doing is completely different than what they're passionate about, yet they spend 
80 to 90 hours a week on that job and they live for the weekend, what advice would you give to someone who knows that that's not the route that they should be going in life, yet they do that every single day because that pays them well? Well, I mean, I think I think you need to have a certain amount of bravery to break that cycle because it becomes self self fulfilling in a way. You know, you end up with a lifestyle where you almost need to have a job like that in the end in order to maintain that lifestyle. And I, I've met many people and certainly in finance met many people who they really couldn't leave the bank because they had such a, a lovely house, which mm-hmm. had such a lovely big mortgage and they had, you know, car loans and all their holidays and their families and things. So certainly when you get a bit older and you start to get into that kind of a, a setup, it's much, much harder to leave. But when you and you're for most people, um, not everyone, of course, but for most people in their early mid 20s, they, they're still not tied down by a lot of those things. And so that's the opportunity, almost the last opportunity that they would have. And I think there needs to be a certain amount of bravery. They have to make a break from from that routine. And, you know, you can do that in in little steps, you know, rather than taking a three week holiday to a a nice beach somewhere, go and volunteer on a conservation project or development project and to see whether or not that it switches you on. And if it does, you then have a certain amount of knowledge that you're stepping into something which is not going to be a total disaster perhaps so that 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 i'd advise and you also mentioned in your book that the toughest part in life is to find your purpose what advice would you give to someone in their 20s and 30s um so they could find their purpose or are in the journey to find their purpose yeah i mean i would certainly um in a it doesn't sound like an answer but i but i think it is i I would certainly advise people not to go out looking for it Mm. uh because you rarely find it. Um, when I when I speak at, at universities, I usually kind of joke with students and, and liken it to, you know, when you go to a nightclub at a weekend, you know, looking for a, a girlfriend or a boyfriend, you never you never find them, right? But then you go shopping on a Tuesday and you and you meet somebody over the frozen pizza counter at your <laughs> supermarket and you suddenly get sparks and and it all kind of happens. So, you know, it rarely happens when you try to force it. So for me. The advice is always, you know, get yourself out into the world. If, if there's something out there that you need to be fixing mm-hmm. and if there's something out there with your name on it that, that is going to be your purpose and your passion, the only way you're going to find it is to get out there and let it find you. And that's really what seems to happen for people who, who you know, succeed in this in this space. Again, going back to the rise of the reluctant innovator, all those problems found those people. Mm-hmm. Those people didn't find that problem. And you know, it's so beautiful. The pro- problem found those people and they did not ignore that problem. And I feel like with most people, even if a problem finds them, they just don't pay attention to that problem. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, um, you know, it's one thing to see, to see suffering or to see something happening, which upsets you. Um, it is another to actually act on it. And, you know, empathy is, is, is two or three stages of empathy. You know, one is to, obviously to to be able to to see pain and suffering and to recognize it but the most important step with with empathy really is actually acting on that feeling Mm. if you don't act on it then you've achieved nothing there's no point in saying you know well you know i it was terrible and i felt so sorry for those people and stopping there feeling sorry for someone doesn't make their life any better Mm -hmm. what makes their life better is actually feeling sorry for somebody and being so upset and so angry that that could ever, ever happen in the first place, that you, you go on this big drive to, to do something about it. And I think that's the, the kind of the biggest 
most important thing. Do you think empathy could be cultivated? Uh, you are a very empathetic person, but but if someone else saw the same situation that you did, might not have that reaction. Why do you think some people are empathetic and some are not? I mean, what a what a, a great question! And if only we knew, eh? I mean, if <laughs> if it was, I've I've always wondered whether there should be well, whether maybe there is, but how we can you know build the ultimate empathy app? You know, how do you mm-hmm. get to care more? Um, you know, people do react. Uh, I, I think the challenge is having people maintain that 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 feeling of concern. I mean, I think a great example, if not a a very disturbing example, that, that small Syrian boy that was washed up on the beach mm-hmm. the years ago in Greece, uh, and those you know terrible pictures that were in the papers and on television and still online of that that little two or three year old boy lying face down on the sand who drowned, falling out of a a, a boat that capsized. I mean that. That for a lot of people, and certainly for politically, was sort of the last straw. People said, okay, this is enough. You know, a line's being crossed. This is terrible. Everybody I know who saw that picture was was deeply moved by it and in many cases very distressed by it. And for a couple of days, it was in the news and it was big. Mm-hmm. Who, who talks about that now, though? I mean, it's gone, right? It's it's another It's another casualty. The thing that made people cry... The thing that made people really get upset in the the first day or two of seeing that some people would have acted on it. And that's great. A lot of people who didn't would have just that that pain would have slowly receded and they would have would have done nothing. And how we get people to turn that care into action. I'm not sure if it's just a biological thing, um, but I'd love to know. And I'm sure many people would love to know. Certainly charities would love to know because that's how they can get more people to care about the causes they, they work for. That's so true. Um, I also want to kind of bring back to a panel you had it with Archbishop Tutu, where one of the students um, in the panel asked you this question that, what do you think is the biggest problem in the world? And you said, the biggest problem in the world is apathy and taking what we think is the easy option and doing nothing about it. But let me ask you this question for someone who is listening to this podcast right now, who wants to make a change in this world, who wants to do something about the situation, but lacks technical skill or doesn't have certain skill set, how can they make a difference and how can they add value? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, um, you know, sadly a tendency in, in the social entrepreneurship and social innovation fields where people are almost expected to to start their own projects, to create their own social enterprise, to do their own thing, create their own NGO. If everybody who cared about anything started their own organization, we'd be in big trouble because we would have hundreds of millions of organizations fighting for limited funding. Nobody would be cooperating. It would just be a big mess and, and nothing would get fixed. Mm-hmm. The world needs people who don't necessarily want to create their own thing and put their own name on something, but care enough about something to join other people who care about it. Mm-hmm. And so if, if anybody out there, you know, they, they care about conservation, they care about gorillas or primates or they care about human rights or refugees, you know, you don't have to have an amazing idea and go out and raise lots of money to make a difference. There are plenty of organizations that are desperate mm-hmm. for help. And I would suggest, you know, searching for those, find another person or some other people or other organizations who share your concerns, could share your passion mm-hmm. and work with them. And, you know, maybe later on, as as you go through that work and as you experience 
the problem in more detail, you may then later on come up with an idea and think, oh, hang on a minute, you know, no one's doing it this way. Maybe I could run my own little project and try it this way. And if that works, then that may lead you to your own organization or your own solution. But that doesn't have to happen. Most people make a contribution by joining others and helping others and not by starting their own NGO or social enterprise. So, you know, just join an organization that's already doing similar work that they're interested in and being part of it. And if they're more passionate about it, then think about creating their own organization. Absolutely. You know, and also, if you know, if you think creating an NGO or creating a social enterprise and building a piece of software and, and going through the marketing and the promotion and the testing and the fundraising and hiring the team and all that stuff. I mean, that's all a huge amount of work. And while you're doing that, you're not actually solving the problem that really upset you in the first place because you're busy doing all the admin mm -hmm. to get your, get yourself going. So you almost get distracted. And, you know, the best way I think to have a positive impact and to have it quickly is to just not do all that unless you really have to. And you'll only find out if you have to do that later if you come up with something which warrants you going through all that all that effort. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with joining other organizations and other people. Mm -hmm. It's what most people do around refugees. You know, the, a lot of the refugee mobilization is is people just seeing things that they that they are very, very troubled by and going and volunteering in refugee centers or helping refugees assimilate in, in new cultures and new environments. There's a huge need for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you're someone who has started many organizations like Kiwanja.net, and you've also started this app called App for My Children. Tell us more about it and what inspires you to start these organizations. So um, Kiwanja.net really is my sort of my mothership. So in, in 2003, when I started doing mobile work, it just became clear that there were lots of other people other than the people I was working for on a contract who were asking the same questions. And I wanted to share what I was learning as widely as possible. So Qanja.net became my kind of organization. It's really just me. Mm. Uh, what does Qanja mean? It's Swahili for earth or soil huh. or me meeting place. It has multiple meanings, but it's kind of, it's almost like space. It's a space okay. where you, where things can happen. And, and ironically, I chose it because I like the name and the sound of the name, but in a way it actually has become that. It's become this space where mm. I can, execute on my ideas and I can do the things that interest me. So Kiwanja is sort of the center of, of my universe. And, and I, I have con certain contracts. I work with Care International at the moment. I work with the mm. UK government's international development department. Um, but I also have lots of side projects. So, you know, For My Children was an app which I self-funded because um, the model I have is, you know, I, I, I do paid work and then I take some of the money I earn and I use it to fund my own ideas. So mm -hmm. I don't have to go and fundraise for them because that you know takes a lot of time and it's usually quite depressing mm -hmm. trying to raise money all the time. Um, so for my children was just a memory making app because I, I wanted. Well, when my mother died, I, I wished I could have gone back to the places she visited and lived in as a child to relive. And just to stand in the places where she stood. And I never got to find those things out. And I felt very sad about that. So I, I felt it would be a lovely thing to have an app where somebody could actually record the special places that mean things to them so that their children can go back one day when they've passed away and relive that walk to school, can stand in front of the gates where they used to live, can go and climb the tree that they used to climb or go and cycle, ride a bike on a street where they learned to ride a bike. I, I just felt there was a, there was a beauty in reconnecting with those memories of somebody who had passed. And that's why 
uh, for my children exists as an, as an example. Um, but you know, there's a couple of apps I've built in a, in a similar way, just projects that I've liked. Uh, Organisations wise, you know, there's one called Means of Exchange, which is looking at how local communities can use technology to, to reconnect more meaningfully with each other. Um, there's a, another site called Everyday Problems that in try, tries to encourage people to pay attention to the world and mm-hmm. to realise that bad things happen every day, not just when they get in the paper. And these are all things that I just, you know, when I pinch myself about the job I have now, you know, these are all things that I love doing. These are all things that I'm incredibly passionate about. And I think they're all important in their own way. And the fact that I have this opportunity now to have this kind of Robin Hood model where I can, you know, earn money mm-hmm. through consultancy, but then I can use that to do all these other things. You know, in a way, a lot of the stuff I do, which doesn't make any money, is the stuff I care about the most. That's amazing. And um, app for my children is a, sounds like a beautiful, beautiful app. I wish we had that a few years ago. Yeah, I mean, my my mother died four about four years ago, five years ago, That's and um, you know, I uh, I, I want, wanted to kind of go because she meant a lot to me and she encouraged me and you know she was a, a big part of my success really. And so you know, I wanted to go back to where she grew up, which is only a couple of hours drive from where where we live now. But um, you know, I, I remember her telling me things, but. There's a lot I'd love to go back to and see again, but I just never actually got to find out where it was and what it meant to her. So, you know, the app now, you know, you take a picture, you can geotag it, you can add some text and then, you know, you can save it. And then maybe even in your will, you say, you know, here's the username and password for my for my children app. Whenever you're ready and whenever you feel you want to, then here's all my memories and all my special places. And you know, it cost a couple of thousand dollars to build. It was a, a very, very low cost um, projects. But again, you know, there was no reason for building that other than it was something I wanted to exist for myself. And I felt that there may be other people out there who, who may feel the same. And I'm, and I'm glad I did it. Yeah. Um, it has a, it's almost, you know, it's, it's, te- it's, it's boring, hard, cold technology, but I think it's solving a soft, beautiful, spiritual problem in a way. Absolutely. It's a beautiful concept and I'll definitely check it out. And you guys should definitely check it out too. And, I'm sure your mom is so proud of you. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, she she was certainly flabbergasted by a lot of the things that I was doing <laughs> towards the end, and, and never quite figured it out. But I know, I know, certainly when National Geographic started to pay an interest, she was, you know, very proud that they had identified me and, and the work I was doing as being something that was worthy of worthy of an award. So uh, yeah, I mean, she she got to see the successes before before she passed away, and that that was important to me. Also, National Geography, um, the Immersion uh, Explorer Award is usually given to climbers, people who dive or who do building. How was your reaction when you found out that you were going to get that award? Um, if I'm honest, I thought it was spam. Um, I got uh, I got an email uh, one evening when I was staying in London, and uh, I thought, this isn't real. Um, didn't, make any, didn't make any sense to me. Uh, as you say, I... I you know, explorers and especially National Geographic explorers, they they dig up bones and they, they, <laughs> they do, you know, they do the stuff you see on TV. They don't do what I do. Um, and so I, I, I kind of left it for a while and then I, I did a bit of online research and then it, it checked out. Um, and, you know, when I got to National Geographic that summer for the, uh, the awards week, uh, they said, look, you know, as far as we're concerned, technology today is a new frontier of discovery figuring out how we can use technology to solve social and environmental problems to make life better for people uh, is for us a 
a frontier of exploration. Uh, and we feel that you're doing it in a way that a lot of people aren't doing it yet. Um, you know, since I won my award, there have been two or three other awards for technology people working in data and visualization. So they certainly continued that theme of trying to reimagine what it is to be an explorer. But that, you know, that award obviously meant a lot to me because I, I had just grown up with those yellow boarded magazines around, you know, always I cut them out and did little montages and, you know, it was something as a child that I was just in awe of really. I think like most of us are when you sort of see the whole national geographic thing. So it, it was an incredible moment to be, you know, compared to that down moment where I had no money and no job and nowhere to live and I couldn't move. And, you know, which was about sort of six, seven years earlier, wow. uh, it, the real turnaround to, to get that. It's crazy how life changes in a moment. Yeah, um, yeah, it, it is. I mean, it, it, it a lot, a lot was packed into that time, um, and you know, my my life got taken over by my messaging platform, and you know, I was doing day jobs at the time as well because Frontline SMS didn't really take off for about two and a half years. Oh, wow. So it was it was kind of a side project. I would go out in the day. I would um, I would take on any jobs I could find at that time. I was you know doing filing and and booking hotels for. Um, examiners coming up to Cambridge to mark exam papers. I mean, anything that would pay the pay the bills. And two and a half years in, Frontline SMS got a really big use in Nigeria. Funnily enough, the place I broke my leg, uh, and then it really took off. So you know, it, it, there's a lot of work I put in. But again, going back to your earlier question, I think the reason I didn't give up was because I just I just really felt deep down that this was solving a problem that needed to be solved, and I just wouldn't wouldn't let it go. Wow, that's amazing. I'm going to ask you some question, um, just like rapid fire question to know you a little better. Okay. Um, so if you could be one person for the day, who would you be and why? Oh, I guess I'd have to be um, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. <laughs> He's so <laughs> funny. When I watched that interview, I was laughing so hard. He's hysterical. Yeah, I mean, he. Um, the reason why I would say he, he is so um, he's so level when you meet him, you would not believe what he's achieved. Yeah. Uh, and he's so open with it um, and such a wonderful person. And, and I think I look forward I, to your book too. So you guys are friends, I believe. Yeah, that's right. Well, I, you know, I met him on that, on that trip where we made that, made that video and uh, we kept in touch ever since. So I'm, I'm still in touch with him. And, um, you know, he wrote the forward to the rise of the reluctant innovator, which, which meant a lot as well. And for me, just kind of cemented, look, you know, this guy is just, just incredible. He, you know, he's a Nobel peace prize winner. He's a hero of the anti-apartheid movement. He's just incredible. Yet he has time. Mm -hmm. Everybody, he will sit down and talk to anybody. And that's why I would like to be him. I think some people let fame get to their heads. They become unreachable. They become exclusive. They start to get a little bit too full of themselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, they lose everything that made them successful in the first place. And he certainly has not done that. What keeps you humble? Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't like show offs. <laughs> uh, and I'm, I'm always sort of pushing the point when I talk about, certainly talk about the work of the users of, of the SMS platform, that the reason it's successful is because of them, not for me. All I have done is enable them to do what they needed to do in the first place. So I, I don't take any credit for that. Uh, and I've, I don't know, I've just um, always been quite shy, I suppose, in that sense. And I, I just don't like to be, I'm obviously grateful people recognize me and my work. And it's obviously a wonderful feeling to be invited to do a podcast like this and to be interviewed for things and to do 
TEDx talks. But mm. I just think I'm just very, very focused on the fact that, you know, it's other people who are trying to solve many of these problems Absolutely. and I'm just helping them. I'm a servant of them. That is such a beautiful concept. And also, you guys should listen to his TEDx, TEDx talks. Both of them are amazing. You've just given two TEDx, correct? That's right. Yeah, I, I was very selective in the two that I did. And uh, the one in Cannes I did because of the film festival. And it's a lovely part of France. Yeah. Um, and actually, I took my, uh, at the time, took my two-year-old son with me. So I, I took oh. Henry. Uh, and he, he went off with the childminder for an hour while I, I did my talk. Um, but yeah, I've done two TEDx's and uh, still waiting for the big TED talk. I'm sure you will have it very soon. Well, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite movie or uh, documentary that you would recommend? Favorite movie is it's quite an easy one for me, really. It's The Green Mile okay. by Stephen King. Um and, you know, probably a little bit, obviously, for the, I don't want to spoil the film for people that haven't seen it, but it's a story of belief and compassion. Mm. And I think a story for how the world can be evil against things it doesn't understand. And how sometimes we can just become tired by it and be, be ground down by it and how it can almost make us want to quit. Um, so it's just, I just found it a very powerful film. I've watched it many, many times. Uh, I would um, I would recommend anybody watch The Green Mile. I will definitely watch it. Um, what are the two books you would recommend to our listeners? Oh, two books. Well, I mean, one of my all-time favorites is Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. I've read that a few times and read it at school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, that's, a, again, it's just a, a very kind of human story um, and a story of, of how lives can turn around. Because uh, in, that, in that story, Pip's life, definitely turns around in a very big way but he has various challenges so it feels like it's rooted in a, a kind of reality almost a modern day reality in a sense and the other book which I, I read in fact when I was in Uganda in 1998 doing some biodiversity work was uh, Into the Wild mm. by Rakoa and it was turned into a book into a film about yeah. five or six years ago I hated the film uh, it Oh, the film's terrible. I mean, it it lost everything that was magical about what um, Chris McCandless did uh, in that in that story. And it's a true story of of somebody who just basically packed everything up and went off into the Alaskan wilderness. But in the book, if you read the book, which I, I totally recommend, I read it nonstop. I, I didn't put it down in the two days I'd read it, wow. uh, and you get a really strong sense of the spiritual nature of the journey he was taking. He was turning his back on a material lifestyle, mm-hmm. turning his back on on a life that he didn't want, uh, and he was searching for something more meaningful, for something deeper. And he he went off into the Alaskan wilderness to find it, and he didn't obviously make it. But you know, the film made it look like a gap year kind of holiday, and then there was a love affair story in there with the girl that didn't actually happen, which I guess they have to have in a film. <laughs> Hollywood always ruins books. Yeah, I mean it's yeah. I mean, don't let the film. If you've seen the film, don't let it put you off the book. The book is amazing, mm-hmm. uh, and I would definitely. I would say if anyone listening to this, when it, when it goes out, if you if you spend the weekend reading that book and watching The Green Mile, you will come out a better person. I, you know, I might <laughs> do that, actually. Probably when I have, like, my vacation or something, I'll definitely do that. You should do it. And let me know how you get on. <laughs> I will. I will. What advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? Oh, wow. Um, well, I suppose it would – it's probably a bit obvious, but it's 
you know, probably don't give up. Um, you know, I, I was I was searching from quite a young age. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got very frustrated, uh, and I touch on it a little bit in uh, in both of the books. In fact, that I've 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 done. Uh, I, I was I think I was trying too hard to find my passion and to find my calling, mm-hmm. and it really got to me. I, I just I just got frustrated by it. So I would tell myself just to to keep going and to maybe be a little bit more patient. Um, where can people find you in social media, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter? So Twitter is my main kind of social media. I'm, I'm I'm kind of contemplating coming off of Facebook, but I'll I'll decide on that in due course. But <laughs> you should have Instagram. I want I'm some on Instagram. Yeah, I have lots of pictures of my my children um, and uh, family stuff and pictures I like to take. So it's Qanjar on Instagram, Qanjar on on Twitter. Um, I do have a Facebook page which is Qanja, funnily enough. Uh, so I'm kind of on all of those and I, I guess I use them to, to, to promote my writing and my speaking and, uh, when I find things that I find interesting and, you know, I, I do a lot of mentoring now and, um, help a lot of young people who are starting out and want advice and they usually find me through, through one of those channels. So it's certainly good to be visible. I, I just see a lot of really quite horrible stuff these days on social media. Mm-hmm. I, I think we're in a, in a bit of a turning point. Where it's almost uh, you know everything we hoped the internet and social media would be mm-hmm. almost feels like it's 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 spun the other way completely and and the divisive hate speech and the and the rhetoric of of just not being nice is, is dominating these days. It's and not good. Also, I feel like social media it's is its own click, right? If someone believes something, they have their own click, so it's more exclusive. We're living in our bubbles. I think you know, there's there's the research which you know fairly fairly accurately, for most of us, I think points to the the fact that we're kind of just hanging out in our own circles with people that have the same belief systems as us uh, anyway. So the kind of the idea that you would be able to to reach out and learn new cultures and new new ideas for many people doesn't happen because you know face the facebook algorithm just pushes news that it thinks they want to hear and you know if you if you go onto twitter or facebook and you 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 know you search or you go through a hashtag and you don't let twitter or facebook decide what you see then you start to see some pretty crazy stuff um you know i think really it should be called anti-social media if we're <laughs> honest. it's true last question what is your definition of being reluctant definition of being reluctant um I would say probably going into something which you know you need to do, but you also realize it's going to make your life a heck of a lot more complicated. Mm. That's that's beautiful. Ken, thank you so much for your time. I really had an awesome time with this conversation. So thank you so, so much. No, no, you're welcome. I've really enjoyed speaking to you too. Thank you. Hey, you guys, thank you so, so much for listening to this podcast. I really, really appreciate your time. And if you enjoyed this episode, then make sure to subscribe because every single week I will come up with awesome and epic interviews like this one. And do not forget to check out my website, limitlessgrid.com for show notes.